0: And in your powerful name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Hey, Amen. Looking for that wise brain. That's what I need. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's good to be back. Uh, normally, this is our missions update uh, uh, time. Uh, our plans for that uh, kind of went awry because, uh, uh, long story, but it didn't happen. But I can say this, just real quick the Kush family is back with us today. So, Hannah. <laughs> Hannah is back from her flight training in Alaska, and remember, we had prayed for her and, and sent her off. And so that's an awesome thing to have you guys back. And I'm sure we'll hear more about it as you have time. But uh, anyway, be sure to to say hello to them now that they're back, and uh, we enjoy having you back. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, for me as a as a public speaker, I have spent the entire my entire time as a pastor, uh, being really nervous on Saturday nights and especially Sunday mornings. Like, I get seriously scared. This is, you know, you can ask my family. This is just something I have not gotten over and I don't... I don't know exactly what to do about it, but it's just one of those things. If, if 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 you've ever had to do public speaking, it's not a lot of fun. You know, stand up in front of people and and try to hold their attention or you know sound halfway intelligent, and they actually identify it as one of the uh, uh, one of the greater fears that people have, uh, especially when it comes to a, a sociological kind of fear. Fear, interestingly enough, fear in general is is one of seven universal emotions that are experienced by every human being on the planet. In other words, there are various emotions that we have that every human being can identify with them, and fear is one of the central ones. Now, it's interesting that fear, fear is not an all bad thing. Actually, fear is a very natural aspect of who we are as humans. It can actually be a protective measure. It alerts us to danger and and can prepare us for dealing with potential dangers, and and it can be a warning, it can be a a signal uh, to be cautious in in life. But we also know that there are a plethora of unhealthy fears that we experience as humans as well. Just, I mean, just the, the, the number of phobias that they've identified is enough to tell us that there's plenty of unhealthy fear uh, in the world as well. We have social phobias, like I mentioned, in terms of public speaking, things that can affect uh, the, how we interact with others. But there's also a lot of specific phobias as well, things like fear of dogs or spiders. There's there's uh, palatophobia. Do you know what that is? It's a fear of baldness or bald people. <laughs> I'm not going to look Jody's way. But... Uh, <laughs> But the other side of that is, uh, chiatophobia, which is the fear of hairy people. So, you know, you get, I've just imagined like a mix of that would be kind of fun. It can get very, very specific. Uh, there's porf, por porphyrophobia. Anybody know what porphyrophobia is? I learned all of these this week. It is the irrational fear of the color purple. <laughs> so clearly, there's not many Prince fans in that group, uh, there. It also, uh, it's one of those things that, like, if talking about all these phobias is making you anxious, it's possible that you are suffering from, and I am not making this up, phobophobia, which is a fear of fears. Uh, so, you know, fear is one of those things. We all experience it. It's not a bad thing, but an unhealthy fear can influence how we live And an unhealthy fear can have a diminishing and limiting effect on us in life. Jesus is going to address some unhealthy fears here in our text today as we continue in our study of Luke's gospel. And if you've got a Bible with you, if you can find your way to Luke chapter 12, please. I just want to say real quick that I so appreciate Blake and Kevin filling in for me while I was gone last week. Didn't they do a great job? They, they provided some really great insight into what I consider some very difficult texts. Uh, and last week, Kevin read the last part of chapter 11, where Jesus really got in there with the religious leaders, was mixing it up, and I felt like he did a good job of reminding us that we don't want to create, like, stereotypes of Pharisees out there and, you know, say, well, look what they did and they're those guys. Instead, it's important to go to a mirror and say, am I one of those guys? Am I? living this the way christ wants me to today we're going to start a section where jesus intends to orient us as his followers and we'll have several stages to it through this chapter but uh he 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 wants to identify for us some unhealthy fears that could influence us in our christian life or could even influence us on a community level uh, as the community of the church so with that in mind, if you're there in... Uh, did I tell you to go to Luke 12 yet? Uh, if you're there in Luke 12, then uh, if you're not, you've got to be fast. But we're going to start with verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, the crowds grew until thousands were milling about and stepping on each other. Jesus turned to his disciples and he warned them, I'm a pretty big deal, and if you stick with me, you'll be a big deal. Oh, I'm sorry, that's a different person. No... He, he, Jesus turned to his disciples and warned them, Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, their hypocrisy. The time is coming when everything that is covered up will be revealed, and all that is secret will be made known to all. Whatever you've said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you've whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the housetops for all to hear. Okay, the, the passage begins with the word meanwhile, or a word that means at that time. Meaning that while Jesus was traveling from the north, from Galilee down to Jerusalem to observe the Passover, this happened. He's attracting crowds. Like, remember, he was going through Samaria. Now, we don't know if he's in Samaria at this point. But he's attracting a huge number of people, it, uh, you know, thousands of people. So much so, like, if you've ever been to a concert or whatever, open seating, and the crowds are pushing in, that's what they're describing there. So Jesus has become hugely popular with all of the people, and Jesus, instead of saying to his disciples, well, look at this, fellas, we made it, you know, we're it now, he takes his disciples aside to warn them about the dangers of that popularity. That's a fascinating thing when I think about it, because I would say the majority, I'm not going to say all, obviously not all, but I'm going to say the majority of fellow pastors that I know have the greatest desire for the largest numbers. I mean, it's just I'm just going to be honest with you. If I go to a conference somewhere and somebody says, you know, how are things at your church? The answer that they're expecting is numerical. Oh, we're running about 200 people on an average or whatever. That is a normal conversation that happens among pastors. I met a young guy one time who was just planning a church and He was an interesting cat. I was just trying to talk to him and kind of find out what was going on with him. And I said, what's, you know, tell me about your church. And I was expecting to hear about, you know, what their philosophy is or how they're pursuing Christ or what they're going to do. He said, well, we've started at about 50, but I think we should be able to get to. And he started laying out the plot for how it is he was going to grow the numbers of people that were in attendance at his church to a certain point. And that was a perfectly natural thing in his mind to do. Guys, there's something wrong with this picture, isn't there? The very thing that almost every church in the United States on the evangelical plane that's desiring to have is lots and lots of people, is the very thing Jesus turns to his disciples and says, I've got to warn you about this, because this could be a problem. And what's the problem that he's describing there? He says, well, the Pharisees are, are, are displaying hypocrisy. In the midst of this. Well, what's the connection in this? Well, hypocrisy in the Greek means playing a part or play acting, projecting one image of self while secretly living another. And so here we have this first unhealthy fear that Jesus is addressing, and it's in connection with popularity. And the lesson is we mustn't fear revealing our true selves, and we could even make that more specific in order to keep people's uh, approval. We mustn't be afraid to be honest and real about who we are, especially if we're doing something that is projecting a false image in order to keep people's approval. And that was what was happening with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were hiding what they were really like, who they really were, behind masks of outward religious behavior because that was the outward religious behavior was something that people were respecting at, at that time. William Barclay once wrote, God would rather have a blunt, honest sinner than someone who puts on an act of goodness. And if the biblical narrative is any indicator of that, well, I mean, look at all the heroes of the faith. If you read through that book, they are deeply flawed human beings, some of them doing terrible things, and, and none of it gets glossed over. None of it gets kind of spun in a good way so that they look better. One of the reasons why the Bible is compelling to me as a genuine thing, because if I was going to write a religion, uh, sit down and write, all, I'd make sure that I look really good in that whole thing. <laughs> they talk about that the, the, uh, Mark may possibly be Peter's version of the gospel. And Peter looks terrible in that whole thing. If I were writing that, I'd be like covering some of that. Like, I, you know, and Peter, he was the one who had it figured out. But uh, either way, the Bible never hides that stuff. The Bible puts it right out there, not to excuse it, not to just say, oh, nothing matters, but to be real and honest about what it is, what the struggle is to be a human being who's seeking after a holy God. And so hypocrisy develops when we fear people's perception of us, when we want to look good and get respected And be popular so that those crowds are maintained, so that everybody approves of us. And the temptation is there to start putting on a show in order to maintain or to keep that good perception of ourselves. We begin tying our sense of value and worth to people's approval, to people's assessment of who we are. Put on just a little bit of yeast, put a little bit of yeast on one lump of of dough, mix it in just a little bit it's small it's barely perceptible it's a secret kind of thing that subtly begins going in and changing the nature of the entire lump of dough puffing it up making it un- expand unnaturally and that's the the thing that Jesus uses as a as a metaphor there he calls it yeast it's a it's a subtle influence And that's what Jesus is actually saying in this, that you've got to be careful about this because this hypocrisy is a subtle influence that can influence the entire thing. Hypocrisy is something that can quietly permeate an entire community of people. It's not even just about an individual getting exposed for hypocrisy. It is about the effect that that has on the larger scale. We've certainly seen plenty of examples of hypocrisy in church in the church, throughout the history of the church. That's nothing that should surprise us. Right now, it seems like celebrity pastor after celebrity pastor is falling and their hypocrisy is is being exposed. and And the damage that is done to the larger church community because of that is incalculable. Because beyond just those, because normally what we think of, when we think of, of, a, of the hypocrisy of a leader being exposed is we think in terms of those who get disillusioned because of that. You know, well, you know, so many people left the faith because they put trust in this guy and this woman and it's just, you know, it fell apart and they, were, they weren't who they pretended to be. But listen, it's beyond just the insincerity of somebody that they trusted. We've also got a church uh, culture right now that accepts Hypocrisy that actually accepts and even cooperates with it, and that—that I think is even to the core of what Jesus is getting at. People who want to be able to retain what's familiar and comfortable, so they become complicit in covering up some sin or glossing over some abuse. I'm sure you've, if you haven't heard it, I'm sure you probably heard about the podcast of this mega church in Seattle that came crashing down when the the leader's hypocrisy of abuse was brought to light. But here's the thing that sends a chill up my spine, is that the man who fell in that podcast is still a pastor. He's actually a a pastor of a new church in a different state right now. And apparently, according to people who are, are inside and close to that, he's up to the same old abusive things that he was up to before. And his, the, the, the building where they meet, the parking lot is full every Sunday. Why? How is that possible? How is that possible that the same church that, that was born on the day of Pentecost, that, that knows what it is, to experience the reality of God. The same church that that had the example of an Ananias and Sapphira set out before them right at the outset of it. How is it possible that this just goes unchecked? Because hypocrisy doesn't just drive people away from the faith. It has a corrupting influence on the very culture of the church. Jeremiah five thirty one, this isn't anything new. Do you know what Jeremiah five thirty one says as the prophet is rebuking the people of Israel? The prophets give false prophecies, the priests rule with an iron hand. Worse yet, my people love it that way. But what will you do when the end comes? And Jesus is warning nothing stays hidden forever. What gets whispered in secret gets shouted in public. And it's likely that he's pointing to God's omniscience here in that God has knowledge that infiltrates every aspect, every locale, every thought. Nothing, nothing is hidden from God. That in itself uh, should be a sobering thought for most of us. But we also know that secrets rarely stay a secret, Uh, you know, How much better is it to live openly, even with flaws, free from the fear of exposure and the tyranny of of public affirmation, to live openly acknowledging, look, I don't do this well. I don't do this well. But I'm on a trajectory. I'm moving in this direction. And if I fall, I will get back up and I will move ahead. And I will keep heading towards the sunrise. I I won't turn from this path. How much better to be able to live openly, knowing that we're secure in the grace of God, then all of this bizarre, hypocritical machination in order to maintain some sense of celebrity worship. If we can believe that God loves us, and really this is what it all comes down to, and this is why this guy keeps hammering at it all the time. If we can believe that God loves us, flaws and all, and if we can find contentment in his love and, and see to it that his love is found the foundational affirmation behind which we build our sense of knowing ourselves, our, our sense of personal understanding, we could make great progress in resisting the temptation to put on a show for others, to act one way in order to cover up some hidden flaw of our true selves. We could be delivered from that fear of revealing our true selves if we would embrace and believe in this boundless love of god fear of human rejection is just no way to live it just is not and jesus actually expounds on that in verse four he says dear friends don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body but they can't do any more to you after that but i'll tell you whom to fear Fear God, who has the power to kill you, and then throw you into Gehenna. Yes, he's the one to fear. Okay, so real quick, understand this. Jesus here is making a contrast. It's very likely that the religious leaders are putting some extreme pressure on on those who are identifying with Jesus. You, we already saw in the last chapter, their, their plans are in place. They're getting ready. They're gearing up to get rid of this Jesus. And, and so, you know, the pressure is going to start turning up on those who are following and, and trusting in him. And he's saying, you know, to, 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 to fear the pressure that's placed on you by, by others and to turn away from God is to make the wrong choice. That's basically what he's trying to get across. I love the way the message paraphrases this verse. He says, don't be bluffed into silence or insincerity by the threats of religious bullies. True, they could kill you, but then what can they do? There's nothing they can do to your soul. Your cold beer. This cool. is my phone's talking to me. Stop. There's ways in which I talk that sound like I'm saying Siri. I'm not going to say it out loud because she'll talk to me again. But and how do you mute the the watch? How do you mute those things? There is a way. Oh, okay, never mind. See, I'm not afraid to expose the reality of who I am. I'm an idiot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah if, if it's not obvious why I'm nervous about public speaking, it should be by now. Okay. okay. There's nothing they can do to you, to your soul, your core being. That's what's really important here. Save your fear for God who holds your entire life, body and soul in his hands. So this is another fear that Jesus is identifying here, that he's warning us away from, that we mustn't ever fear human retribution, as though there is something that humans could do to us. Whether we're talking about like the kind of persecution that people have suffered throughout the years in identifying with Christ, where they're thrown in jail or threatened with death, or whether we're even talking about just the public perception of us, this is nothing to be afraid of. And it's a very simple point. Human power and authority is limited to what, limited to what happens in this life, but God's promises that there's life beyond this for those who believe and trust him. And Jesus describes a final judgment. And I, I want to make clear that when Jesus is saying this, we don't want to assume that he's saying this like, you know, fear God who can kill you and then you know, throw you into Gehenna, as though that God's running around looking for somebody to kill. It's not, it's not the concept. He's just saying that life and death are in his hands. There's a transcendent authority in this whole thing. And humans are way, way, way below that in terms of us giving them any kind of sense of control over us. And he's saying that that God is in control of life and death and whatever comes after that, whatever happens after that, have concern and respect for the greater authority who is God. And Jesus describes this final judgment as Gehenna And this is the one and only time that that word, Gehenna, gets used in the book of Luke. Uh, Jesus uses that term also in Matthew and Mark, and it's the same concept of the description of a final judgment. And it's a term that's unique to Jesus. That's interesting. that, That that word, Gehenna, never appears ever again in the New Testament. No one ever uses it or repeats it. Some have said that Gehenna was a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem, there's actually no indication of that being right. There's nothing that corroborates that either from the writings we have from that time period or, or you know, uh, from any archaeological examination. What Gehenna was, and Gehenna was a real place. It's referring to the Valley of Hinnom, which was there uh, outside of Jerusalem, where Israel had forsaken God. They had decided they were going after the foreign gods, the pagan gods, and and in that valley, they committed terrible, uh, pagan atrocities in the rituals that they attended to. And God declared they were going to face the the consequence for those atrocities. And it harkens back then to Isaiah 66, which Jesus in Matthew and Mark actually quotes, where God was forecasting that the enemies of Israel were going to come and the people were going to end up getting killed and their bodies were going to be lying around in this valley unburied and desecrated, and it would be an endless feast for worms, and the fires of that destruction would always smolder. And it was a word picture, uh, uh, an illustration of this great destruction, this terrible ending. And if we think about it, the fear of death is actually a denial of eternal life. This fear of this great destruction and death, this, this uh, you know, concern for what a human being could do to us is a, 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 is a denial of eternal life, which Jesus is offering to those who identify with him, those who call him king, a life that extends beyond this life forever. That's the hope that we have. It's a reminder that we need to, to stick with Jesus because he's the source of that forever life that has been promised to us. Now, we don't want to read Jesus's words as a threat here, and I fear that way too many do use it that way. I mean, the thing about it is, if you have a Bible open, anybody have a Bible with them, have it open? If you have it open, what does Jesus call his disciples when he begins this part? What does Jesus call his disciples in verse 4? Anybody have it? Not just friends, dear friends. And my friends, it's, it's, however you translate it, the idea behind it, it's an affectionate terminology that's being employed there. How interesting that he starts this section with that word. It's the first time also in Luke that Jesus has used that sort of endearing name for his followers. My dear friends, my close friends, you're the ones that I'm united with. And it sort of walks us to the next section there in verse six. What is the price of five sparrows? Two copper coins? Yet God doesn't forget a single one of them. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. I really believe that just, you know, in case his dear friends were getting the wrong message from his previous statement, he reinforces just how valuable they and we are to God. And this, this fear is a fear that he's addressing here that all of us wrestle with as human beings. It might even be one of those universal kind of things here. He's encouraging us that we mustn't be afraid that we're worthless, that somehow we are worthless to God. And again, as I stated before, one of our main challenges as followers of Christ is to build our identities on God's vast, boundless love for us. We are important to God. He values each one of us. He he contrasts it with sparrows, which doesn't mean a lot to us. That's not something that you know, But we understand that those are very common birds, and he says he's aware of all of them. He numbers the hair on our head. I mean, you know, for some of us, that's not a big job, but, you know, but <laughs> it's a big job for some people. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but what his point is, is that we're, we're, we're valuable to God. You know, this is the basis for a healthy sense of self-worth. You know, we've gone through times and periods in the church's history, especially recently, wondering about, you know, the place of, of self-esteem and those kinds of things within the Christian circle. And Jesus calls us to lay down our lives. Where does all this fit? Here's where it all fits. This is where it all comes together. This is the basis for a, for a healthy sense of self-esteem, that I'm valuable. I'm valuable to God. I'll tell you, it, there, there's one thing our society is experiencing right now. It's a, an unhealthy dependence On people around us to provide us with affirmation. Uh, Computer technology and social media have gone a long way towards emphasizing our insecurities. I mean, to me, it's just this strange irony that I feel when I'm constantly trying to prove to my computer that I'm not a robot. Uh, (laughs) That's a weird thing to me. And, 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 and this is one of those things that it becomes dehumanizing to us along the way. And then we've got social media that, that, that kind of reinforces these issues. And, you know, it's one thing to use social media to, to connect with others, build a good sense of community. But it's another to constantly be tethered to that social app, incessantly trying to see if somebody has liked us or somebody has commented favorably on something that we've put up there. Psychologists are sounding the alarm almost daily about the effect that this is having on us. And it's morphed into this unhealthy search for external validation. And it leads to all kinds of unhealthy life patterns of comparing ourselves to the images that we see uh, of others. Even developing addictions to the dopamine rushes that we get from having those little blue thumbs telling us somebody likes us. Jesus is grabbing us by the shoulders here. And he's looking us right in the eyes through this text. And he's telling us as clearly as he can, God loves you. You. With all the flaws. With all the things that go on in your life. God loves you. And if God loves you and values you, you have the possibility of a transcendent life a place of security and serenity that can only come from knowing that we mean something, that we have value and purpose, that we are important to the one who made us. He loves us. He loves you, not for what you can achieve or how you look or what sort of possessions you've somehow been able to accumulate. He loves us because we are his just like the unconditional love that a parent can have for a child. We know it's not always the ideal, but in that sense, in that sense of love that a parent has for a child, God has that for us as his creation, but it is the ideal. It is infinite and perfect. And if we can embrace that truth, that this infinite and perfect creator god loves us it changes everything it changes everything because it doesn't matter what anyone says or does or whatever threats get imposed on us we can stand with confidence and serenity knowing we are loved by really the only one that matters the only one who holds life and death Okay, well, Jesus goes on to point out another unhealthy fear. Verse 8, I tell you the truth. Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, the Son of Man will also acknowledge in the presence of God's angels. But anyone who denies me here on earth will be denied before God's angels. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And this, again, is controversial at the end. The front part of it is pretty straightforward, uh, you know, uh, uh, But the basic idea that Jesus is trying to communicate here is that we mustn't be afraid to openly declare our allegiance to Christ. And obviously, given the growing opposition to Jesus from the religious leaders, he knew the pressure was going to be on, especially soon for his disciples. So he's encouraging his followers not to be ashamed of the one that they've put their hope in, telling us as well, don't be ashamed of the one that you're hoping in. We don't want to be, you know, uh, timid, or afraid, but we don't want to be obnoxious at the same time. But, and, and listen, we don't want to get the wrong idea uh, or impression of what he's saying here. He's not saying that if we fell to, you know, to tell everyone that we're a Christian, then Jesus is going to snub us. And when we get to heaven or something like that, you know, you go, you know, while he's meeting somebody, I'm a Christian. Okay. But can I take your order, please? It, you know, it's not that. It, it's not that. It, it, but again, it's just like a word picture. And it has to do with this sense of reciprocation. In other words, imagine going somewhere that you see someone that you know, that you've known maybe for quite a while, but they're hanging out with a bunch of people that you're not familiar with, and when you get near them, they pretend not to know you, and they move on, and suddenly they have a British accent, and I'm not sure what's going on there. (laughs) So at the same time, because they're kind of moving away from you, you can't introduce them to your friends. And, And this is the idea behind this. This is this reciprocal kind of thing. The association's been cut off. By the friend, not by you, but by the person who did it to you. So Jesus is saying that if we disassociate from him in this life, it carries on to the next. And that's largely what he's been saying when it comes to to verse 10 then in blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Understand, this has to do with with salvic consequences. We know in Mark 3, when Jesus gives this warning about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, is because they were accusing him of casting out demons by using the power of Satan. Initially, basically, they're rejecting Not initially, but they're basically rejecting the work that has been done by the Spirit of God, which is that redemptive work. And this is the point that Jesus is making. If a person rejects, and that's the operative word here, rejects the saving work of the Holy Spirit, calls it evil and resists it, well, that person's not going to get in on the saving work because God's not going to force something on someone that they don't want that's, that's a reality. That's the whole basis of the love that we see displayed from the very beginning of the creation story. And that's what Jesus is warning about. It has a, it has eternal consequences because unless the the mindset is reversed, that person will always reject this offer of life. Does that make sense? That's basically what that's trying to say. You, when I was a kid and I'd heard about this idea that there's a sin that you can commit that you never get forgiven of, I, you know, called it the, the UPS, the unpardonable sin. And, and and I was worried about it all the time. I, you know, especially in my formative years as a believer, like, oh, did I say something there that maybe this cut me off? Am I not, you know? And over the years, I've known way too many believers who, who still anguish over this. Well, I don't know, maybe I committed this sin. I'm telling you, if that's ever been a problem for you, let it go. Absolutely, let it, because anyone worrying about this is simply proving that they have a conscience and are perfectly positioned for the forgiveness of anything at, at that point. So let it go. If you're not rejecting Jesus, if you're not calling Jesus evil outright, you know that's not, a, it's not applicable to you. And if you are rejecting Jesus and calling him evil, you don't care what I'm saying anyway. So it doesn't really matter at that point. So. You know, but but if you'll change your mind, this is the other side. If you change your mind, you'll know forgiveness because you'll accept and call what's good good, and, and all the possibilities are still there. Did I make that perfectly confusing enough to, to get? Or do you get what I'm saying? Right? Okay. Okay. Let's move on. Uh, this is a final section of this. And when you're brought to trial in the synagogues and before rulers and authorities, Jesus projecting ahead, knowing what's coming. Don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say. The Holy Spirit will teach you at that time, what needs to be said. So I can imagine that the disciples by this time are starting to think, you know, this all started, remember, because they're hugely popular. Like they're a big deal. And they're like, yeah. And then all by this point, they're kind of like, you know what? I don't know if I can do this. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if I have the courage to stand up to this much popularity and then persecution. I, you know, and I'm pretty sure I don't know the right words to say, to, to defend this position. And I can relate to that. I mean I, I relate to that a lot. I don't I don't enjoy confrontations or conflict, because I'm never sure of, of what I should say, but this is Jesus' encouragement to us. We mustn't be afraid of what to say. This is plain and simple. And listen, I know that there are preachers who have taken this to mean that they don't prepare anything, they just stand up and, people and talk. And the Holy Spirit will give them something to say. I've suffered too many of those <laughs> lectures from the Holy Spirit. Or maybe. Uh, but, but most of the time, you know, uh, we have to understand that what, what Jesus is, is talking about here is that we don't have to, most of the time, we don't have to study ahead of time, like as if we're taking a test. We've got to remember all of the very intricate facts and figures. Jesus is encouraging us so that, that if we find ourselves suddenly facing opposition because of our faith, the Holy Spirit will give us the words as they 're needed, an important thing because maybe silence is the best reaction, and something like that. yeah, but if i 'm quiet, then they 're going to think they're right that 's not what it's about anyway it 's not about trying to make sure that everybody sees we 're right it 's a matter of representing the this love that God has for the human race into this world and uh, and so sometimes. Uh, we come away from something saying, I I didn't think of anything to say. Well, there you go. Take courage. (laughs) Maybe the Holy Spirit was leading and and helping you to, to not say anything. Maybe what we would have said at that point might have been more damaging. We don't have to be afraid that we don't know enough or we can't mount a proper defense. God is the one promising to do that for us. Didn't we just sing that this morning? Isn't that the whole thing that he like led open with? Like this is God's, you know, this is, and I honestly, I didn't get together with Matt saying, I'm going to talk about this and you say that. I, I was really impressed that he said that because that's what this is all about. That, that God is the one who's fighting these battles for us. And he promises to provide us what we need. So all in all, Jesus is warning us, his followers, away from unhealthy types of fear. He's encouraging us to be genuine, not to be fearful of being real as his followers. He tells us to respect God, not to to fear, people or institutions that can't have any impact on the core of who we are, our eternal soul. And let's find confidence in in how much God values and loves us and let his love be the basis for letting go of our insecurities. And if we're forced to choose, don't be afraid to stand with Jesus because he's the one who's going to take us through on and on into forever He's the one who will never leave us and never forsake us. This is a calling to a radical commitment. His his words are, are admittedly a little bit unnerving when we look at it. And when we're genuine and we become vulnerable, we're open and susceptible to people's criticisms, and that's not easy. And no one wants to be rejected by others, and it's it's, it's, it feels threatening to, to speak up as a believer because we don't know what the consequences may be in an ever-changing world. However, Jesus isn't asking us to do these things in our own strength. He's not telling us to be these superhuman beings who walk around and do all this stuff. He's inviting us into this unique and transcendent relationship with him that is able to, as he did, overcome this world. So let's ask God to help us to serve him boldly. Let's take up this challenge to trade in the unhealthy fears that could influence us. Let's discover what peace and joy and new beginnings God has for those that he loves. And I know that if we can really, if we can really believe who we are, and then we can live in a way that we have nothing to fear. I know who I am. I'm loved by God. And I've asked you guys to say that stuff before, and I'm going to make you do it again because I can't think of a better way to end this this morning. But if I ask you, who are you, you oftentimes will come back with your name. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm Jimmy, I'm Tommy or, or Susie or, or, or whatever. But that's not who you are. That's the name that we've given you so that we can identify you and call you out in the crowd. But who you are, who you are, is someone who is loved by God. And so if I ask you, who are you, I want you to respond. I am loved by God. Oh, let me do this then. You're ready. <laughs> who are you? are you? I love my God. Why would you ever fear anything when he loves you like he does? Right on? right on? All right. Very cool. Why don't you stand up with me, please? God, we thank you for your word and we thank you that while you challenge us with it, we recognize, Lord, as, as we come before your word, we recognize there is a, a soberness to the challenges, the, the calling that you've placed on us. It's not all fun and games. We recognize we know that, Lord. There are costs to this. But, Father, we thank you that even as you lay those things out, you continually drop that message to us that you love us. That whatever it is that we're called to and whatever hardship it may incur, how could that compare to an eternal God who made us, who loves us? Flaws and all who waits for us, who waits for us like the prodigal's father with arms open wide, ready to greet us whose arms wrap around us and whispers in our ear, I love you. What can compare to that? What can this world offer me or threaten me with that could compare with that? A transcendent love. Father, Reinforce that in our hearts and in our lives. Help us to live that out as a reality in the way that we interact with one another and the way that we carry ourselves in this world in the values and the priorities that we embrace. We pray this, Father. I pray this for this community of people. Drive it deep into our hearts. Your love for us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.